and welcome to another episode of our Practically Speaking podcast series. I'm Rachel Graham. I'm a corporate and finance partner at Harney's offices in London. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by my usual compatriot, Amy Roost, who is our Managing Director of Client Services from Harney's Fiduciary. And today we have a very special guest. I'd like to welcome Sonia Desi, who is the owner of Appleton Company Services, which is an international company formation agent and company secretarial company with a huge focus these days on governance, risk and compliance. Hi, Sonia. Hello, and thank you to you both for inviting me. Welcome, and obviously, welcome back to Amy. Uh, Hello again, thank you. So today, we are going to talk about the new Register of Overseas Entities, which many of our listeners may have heard about because Companies House has been advertising and promoting this register for about the last six months. But notwithstanding that, we thought it would be helpful to give our listeners a bit of a rundown as to the background of this register, what it is, where it's come from, and why we have it. And more importantly, how it might affect our listeners. Amy? Yes, so the Register of Overseas Entities has come about out of a need to understand who is behind offshore companies, overseas entities owning or holding UK property. So if the property were held by a UK company, somebody searching the land registry would be able to hop over to company's house, put in the company name and be able to see the details of the people behind that entity. So the Register of Overseas Entities has come about so that when somebody looks at the land registry, sees that the property is owned by an entity, they then go to company's house and they will be able to see the overseas entity and the details of the people that are behind that overseas entity at company's house. So that really is the effect of this legislation. And well, it's come in quite quickly. It was advertised that it was coming in kind of February, March time and was made effective on the 1st of August. And entities now have six months in which to register. So the properties have received a letter from Companies House telling them what they have to do. But we are aware that in many instances, clients or the actual people that need to register have not received their letters yet, maybe because they don't live at the property or or whatever. So we're we're trying to get the message out there um, to help people to achieve this registration before the imminent deadline. That's right. Thanks very much, Amy. So ultimately, as a starting point, the obligation is on the companies themselves to make the application or get themselves registered on this new register. I understand that the legislation, and I should at this point just point out that obviously this is English law legislation. We at Harneys don't practice English law, so we are not advising on English law. But what we are trying to do with this podcast is to make sure that people are aware of what their obligations might be. And if people have specific questions, then we do encourage them to reach out to their English lawyers for specific advice. So that said, the the starting point for all of these overseas entities is to contact who they think are their registrable beneficial owners. Now, many companies will know exactly who their beneficial owners are. Often it will simply be the person who is named on their share register as owning all of the shares in the company. But some other structures, a little bit more complicated, There might be a little bit more investigation that's required in order to find out who the beneficial owners are. Sonia, are you able to give us some examples of different scenarios where 
the registrable beneficial owner might not be the person whose name appears on the, the share register of the overseas entity. Yeah, absolutely. The regulations themselves do outline specific criteria who they would deem for the person to be a registrable person. As we mentioned, there's the, the typical scenario where there's just an ultimate beneficial owner who is a natural person. And there would be certain conditions that that individual would meet. So, for example, if they own shares or if they had voting rights or if they had some sort of what we call significant influence and control, which could also include the removal or the appointment of the board of directors to that particular overseas entity. So you could have a situation where somebody isn't on the share register. But the board of directors of a company is used to acting on the instructions of this third party, perhaps under the terms of of some sort of agreement that the company has entered into with this third party. And it is that person who could be the registrable beneficial owner for the purposes of this overseas entities register. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, very clearly defined. And we just talk about a very, very basic sort of structure and the overseas entities could then fall into a very, very complex scenario where there's lots of international holding companies or a trust structure of ownership or a foundation. So the process itself in terms of identifying who or whom is a registrable person is actually quite complex. And hence why um, the regulations and the guidelines are quite specific in carrying out the identification process. That's great. Thank you for that. I think one of the areas that we've come across in in identifying registrable beneficial owners, which probably is of some use for some of our listeners who perhaps own commercial property, where the direct owner of that or the registered proprietor of that property might be an overseas entity, but that might then be immediately held by a UK company, for example. And that UK company, under its own obligations with Companies House, will have already disclosed who its persons of significant control are. So there isn't always the need to repeat a process that's already been undertaken. It would simply be a case of identifying that there's a UK company at the next level of ownership. Companies House would be able to look in their own records and be able to make the link between the overseas entity and the persons of significant control who have been identified in respect of that UK company. So whilst sometimes there are very complicated structures with lots of layers of trusts and foundations and intermediate holding companies, there may be an opportunity if any of those are of themselves registered with Companies House that the the sort of investigatory process can stop at that entity or person. That's also correct. And I think the the key point to, to note here is just to ensure that The details of the UK entity are up to date. And obviously, again, that falls into verifying and making the statements that you have to do when you actually file the register to ensure that you have identified all the information, that the information is up to date. Because when verification takes place, you actually have a three month timeline to ensure that that information is delivered to the register. I think that takes us quite nicely into the question of who is able to verify the information. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand that whilst the company is able to make the application, they can't complete the application themselves because there needs to be an independent verification of the information relating to the beneficial owners. So I think, Sonia, obviously, 
Appleton is an entity that's able to do that. Could you just explain why you are able to do that? Yes, we are regulated in the UK to verify the data and Companies House have also issued us an authorised agent number, which allows us to file the overseas registers. So just to give you an idea of persons who can actually file the registers are obviously trust company service providers, independent legal professionals, auditors, insolvency practitioners, and estate agents and letting agents. Obviously, the reason for all these types of professionals to be able to file the register is because, A, that they are, have some sort of internal verification process already within their organisations and that they are regulated by a supervisory body. They are very specific in the regulations as to who can and who cannot carry out this process. And we will say that the process is, you know, is quite streamlined and there are specific statements that have to be made and the information has to be verified. And you must ensure that you hold data of the information that you are verifying. So, Amy, could you perhaps run through an example of how one of our companies that Harneys looks after that owns property in in the UK would be able to interact both with our team internally and then obviously with using Sonia's services as well to actually go through the registration process? Because it does have a number of steps to it. And I think it would be helpful if we explain how it actually works in practice. Yeah, sure. So we've obviously helped quite a lot of our clients already to register. So we've developed a quite streamlined process between our respective teams. So most of our entities that need to register are BVI entities, obviously, but we do have handfuls in our other jurisdictions. So we have centralised the process in the BVI where clients need to register. We ask them to confirm who needs to be identified in the UK. We check those records against our records. Obviously, we have reporting obligations in the BVI. So we already have AML beneficial owners and we have already reported boss beneficial owners. And obviously, the boss legislation is closely based on the UK persons of significant control regime, 25% threshold, but it is in fact sometimes different parties that need to be verified. But with the typical structure, the client tells us who needs to be identified. We check our records. We make sure our due diligence is up to date. We fill in all the necessary forms at our end. So it's a seamless process from the client side, but obviously because we don't hold the requisite license in the UK to allow us to report, we then draw in Sonia's team to handle the UK verification and the kind of data entry payment processing side of things and I think we've got a seamless process now. And Sonia could you just explain a little bit what you will be doing with the data that Amy provides to you because obviously clients shouldn't be concerned about the handling of its personal data that Harneys holds for them. We're sharing it with you for the purposes of making the application to Companies House to go on the register, but you have an obligation as the verification agent to conduct various tests or try to, in order to independently verify the information that's been provided to you. I think it might be just interesting if you could share what those processes are. Yeah, absolutely. So as as, um, Amy said, they have a very, very sophisticated system in place where we actually have access to the data and everybody who has access is obviously through a, a security, safe security network. So one of the most important things is that data does not sort of be distributed from A to B. So we, we have good access to the data. 
we review the data and we verify it through independent software that allows us to check passport details or the identification document that we've given in terms of personal ID. And then we verify the information that we have to hold in terms of a residential address. It gets a little bit more complex where, for example, we're dealing with persons who are politically exposed and their family members. And yes, we do provide the service to PEPs. However, as I have detailed, it is a lot more intricate and many more checks are required. A bit more involved. Um, you, you may well be, be requesting further information. And I think it's worth reiterating that there is a requirement that the information that is being verified is no more than three months old. That's so it needs, it needs right. to be up to date and, and where the information is certified, it needs to have been certified by a recognised professional person generally in, in the jurisdiction. Amy? Yeah, the one thing that's been that. tripping us up is that the UK requirements are very strict. So we have we have collected due diligence that meets the BVI requirements, but now there's a requirement in the UK again that the photograph is a true likeness of the individual is included in the certification. So we've had quite an annoying, frustrating situation for some of our clients where we've got fresh due diligence, but because the requirements of the BVI and the UK are slightly different, we've then had to revisit it with them to get them to add the statement of true likeness, which was included in the BVI until recently and then was dropped. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? If everybody around the world all agreed on the wording that they wanted for certifications, I think it would make compliance officers' lives a lot easier. But 100%. It, keep, it keeps us on our toes, I think. So I think we've just outlined a couple of the sort of common pitfalls that people should be aware of. Sonia, how have you found the application process generally? What's the company's house sort of software and, and systems like? Is it easy to use? And now it is, yeah. And there are obviously, as with any system, we did have a few teething problems. But I would say, generally speaking, the applications do tend to go through. Currently, they are experiencing a few glitches in terms of how data is entered. And it's very important to let you know that even a single dot or a misspelling will cause the application to fail and company's house will not register it. And that then prolongs the service because you then have to re-register the entire process. And that's where the time consuming takes place. And if they can't identify, then you do have to get in contact with company's house. And they do have a dedicated department actually who are working, I have to say, very well to get the issues resolved. But on that point, I would note that we are slowly running out of time now. There's less than 10 weeks before the register closes, which is the 31st of January. So we do anticipate quite a big uplift. On the timing point, how long does a, a sort of standard application take to get through and, and what form does the notification from Companies House take with the number? We're very lucky at the moment, actually. We're experiencing around 48 hours currently. That's great. So we're, we're very, very impressed. And the form actually is, is by email where Companies House will issue the actual registration number for the overseas entity. And it comes in the form of an email and then we forward it on to Harney so they have a record. At this point, obviously very important to note as well that this is an annual obligation. So they will have to anticipate six weeks before the renewal is due, we will let the clients know and to get everything filed and everything must be filed within 14 days of the renewal date. So that's unfortunate, not one of those registrations that you just do and forget about. We are going to have to revisit this every year just to update as to any changes to the company itself, or I guess in circumstances where the company's perhaps disposed of the property during 
the course of that year, there'll be some notification about that as well. And I think there's also an ability to apply to come off the register once a company no longer holds UK land. Yes, you must keep the register updated. And if the entity no longer holds the UK land, then you must inform Companies House of that change. And actually any changes relating to the overseas entity, it's in the entity's interest that they update the information as soon as possible. And most importantly, for it not to hold out-of-date information and information that's incorrect. I suppose that takes us to the reason why and the importance of holding or obtaining an overseas entity's number. A number of our clients will have held, held property for a number of years and, and may not have any immediate reason to want to dispose of that property. But I guess the important thing for everyone to note is that post 31 January 2023, if you wish to buy or sell land that is currently held by an overseas entity, or you wish to grant encumbrances, mortgages, charges over that land, you will not be able to do so unless that entity has an overseas entity number. And you could very well find yourself unable to raise finance, purchase property or sell property as a result of having not gone through that process. So I think it is It is very important. We've got 10 weeks to go until the end of January. We know that the Land Registry is already putting restrictions on the Land Registry entries of companies that own, overseas companies that own land in the UK. And so it, it is a very real issue that people who hold land need to deal with. I think one of the issues that we've been finding, Amy, is that the transitional rules that have come into place since 28th of February this year are not terribly clear. So if you own a company that did hold UK land but disposed of it since the 28th of February of this year, 2022, there is a requirement or there appears to be a requirement under the transitional provisions in the legislation that means that you still need to make a statement to Companies House about your prior ownership of that company and submit some details of the disposition and in some circumstances submit information about the beneficial ownership of that company. So as I said, the rules around this are not very clear. If you are concerned that you might fall within one of these categories of being an entity that has disposed of property since the end of February this year, we would strongly advise that you obtain some English law advice on, on the specifics of what you need to do. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing that we need to just make everybody aware of is there are some very significant penalties around not registering on time. There are really significant penalties. If people miss the 31st of January 2023 deadline, it's a per diem fine of two and a half thousand pounds, I think I'm right, Sonia? That's correct, yeah, two and a half thousand sterling. Yeah, which is going to quickly add up. So, so I think we, we just need to really impress on people that if it's easy for them to understand who their beneficial owners are, don't delay and just register as soon as you can. If there is some confusion or, or you need some advice, take that advice now. The holidays are just around the corner. And then once we come back from holidays, it will be that deadline before we know it. So act now, I think has to be the key takeaway. 
Sonia and Amy, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. I think it's been very helpful to chat through the practicalities of the new overseas entities register. And I think the most important takeaway for our listeners is if you do own a property in the UK that you hold through an overseas entity, whether it be a company, a trust, a foundation, or indeed any other body corporate, please do reach out and ask for some assistance as to how you get that company and overseas entities number, because it will allow you to then deal with that property in the future as and when without hiccups. 